All right. We, uh, when we wrote the outline, what we were going to talk about here is deliverance and inner healing. And uh, we'll see where we go. If we get to that, it'll be some form of that. Uh, the last time that I was down here in Burlington, uh, was at the burn, and I spoke on a very strange subject. And it was also the, la- the thing I spoke on, Pastor Richard, uh, when uh, Pastor Tucker's, you know, the I am thing. I spoke on familiar spirits. And uh, I thought about, I want to touch on that, because uh, there is a, I, I was looking for some notes, I couldn't find it. Uh, but th- it's, it's a very interesting subject. When we talk about familiar spirits, you know, the Bible talks about this type of demonic strategy. Uh, the word we translate familiar is, of course, in Spanish, familia. It has to do with family or the familiar. Uh, it comes from the, the word that we translated in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament into Greek, you know, the Septuagint. Alexander the Great wanted to have every known book in the world translated into Greek. And so he hired some Greek scholars to translate the Old Testament for his big library in the city he humbly called Alexandria. Uh, he, uh, he wanted to have the, the Hebrew scriptures in Greek. And so we, we see this, ver- this idea in Old Testament show up called familiar spirits, or uh, it can also, uh, divination, it's, it's spoken of as divination, it's also spoken of as uh, necromancy, someone who's contacting the dead. That's the kind of idea that we get from the Old Testament scriptures when it talks about this idea of familiar spirits. But what, what the, the Greek scholars that translated it into Greek from the Hebrew, they used a word that was ventriloquist. That's the word they used. So they said, here's a guy that someone's going to conjure up the dead or speak to the dead for you. It's going to be a ventriloquist with the idea that He's going to become the avenue. He's going to give voice to the deceased, voice to the past, to give you guidance or pressure to do such and such in the present. You understand? See where I'm connecting the dots on that? So a familiar spirit, it gives voice to the past to exert influence in the present. That's the idea of a familiar spirit. And so it was forbidden. It was a demonic spirit, but it it wasn't a type of spirit as much as a function of a spirit, Okay. So it's like not a familiar spirit. Is oh, that's a certain type of spirit. It's it's a strategy. Paul said in Ephesians chapter six, we uh, we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes, uh, the devil's methodology. The Greek word that we translate schemes is methodoia, where we get the word methodology, methods, and it's a compound word in and of itself. This Greek word methodoia, and it means to travel amid. Okay. So the enemy traffics in certain ways in our life, and they're familiar pathways, they're familiar things. There's, he, go, he moves in and out of our life, and he develops strategies or methods that we need to be aware of, because it's a tragedy if the enemy uses a strategy in your life now that worked on you in the past. I mean, it's one thing to be suckered once, it's another thing to be suckered twice. And so we want to be aware of what the enemy does. We want to know his schemes, his methodoia, his, in the Greek, we're, I mean in the English we translate that, a lot of translations, schemes, the devil's schemes. It's where we get the word schematic, blueprint. There are patterns of behavior, strategies that the enemy tries to use again and again and again. He studies you 
and he tries to lay that over your life, and there's a schematic, a strategy, a blueprint by which he operates in your life. And so we can't afford to be ignorant of the devil's devices, be ignorant of the devil's schemes. How does he operate in your life? There's a unique way he does, and you need to expose that and become resistant to it. And one of the ways in which the enemy operates is through what is known, or a strategy known as familiar spirit. Now, when we look at how the translator translate that as ventriloquist, a familiar spirit isn't just the enemy, uh, us trying to contact the dead, okay? What he's trying to do is lock you into the familiar behavior of your past. A familiar spirit is the guardian of the status quo in your life, to try to at least try to keep you stuck to your past uh, results. He may not be able to keep you from doing it again, but he doesn't want you to go any further. So he'll surrender previous ground and allow you to stay at the level you're at as long as you don't start getting some high aspirations and want to go higher. You don't want to accomplish more. Because as soon as that happens, this familiar spirit kicks in. And so there's a psychological component to that. There's a sociological component to that. There's a theological component. The theological component is what we're talking about, the scriptures, how we track this behavior in, in, in our lives. You know, I would, I would propose to you that when David fell with Bathsheba, that was a familiar spirit. There was a family spirit that had trafficked in David's ancestry. There's reason to believe that King David was the product of an illicit relationship his father had. There's two different genealogies we find for David, and they, they don't line up. One, it seems as though David was probably the product of an adulterous relationship his dad had. And so when David says, in sin I was conceived, it's more than a lot of people just say, yeah, well, we're all conceived in sin. No, no. David was conceived in a sinful act, and that's why we see this sexual immorality as reinserting itself throughout his family line. And somebody had to break that and confront that. And so David had this weakness in him that the enemy was trafficking. And if you look when Samuel, not Samuel, Nathan confronted David. Remember David? As affair with Bathsheba, she comes and she says, it's so, it's so uh, poignant how he says, she says it. And this thing displeased the Lord. And she said, I am pregnant. And then it says, and this thing displeased the Lord. Uh-huh. Lust gave birth to sin. Now David's got to deal with the fallout of his behavior. So he, get, he bumps the husband off, marries her, and says, no one needs to know. But there's a prophet in the land. And Nathan comes and pulls the blankets off of him. And he tells him this. He says, there was a wealthy man who had many, many lambs, many sheep, a large herd. And he had a traveler come to him. Someone traveling amid. There was a, a spirit of lust that visited him. And David could have taken care of his physical desires with his vast flock of sheep. He had a lot of wives. But instead, David lusted after the one lone sheep of someone else. He said there was a poor man had one sheep. It slept in his arms. It was like a pet tooth. And he, he stole it from that and fed the traveler this other woman. It, the, the language is that same kind of traveling amid. There was a traveler that came to him. And so we see David falling, and we see this sin show up in Absalom. Solomon, Solomon's downfall was 
700 wives and 700 mother-in-laws. No, I'm just kidding. It, uh, he had a, he was, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. He, he, uh, he, so he had this, uh, Christopher's got some really bad mother-in-law jokes. I'm telling you, you got to ask him about it. I heard him tell one in Latin America, he said he was casting devils out. And the, uh, he cast one out of this mother-in-law and the demon on the way out said, thanks. I'm trying to get out of so, that terrible? Yeah. Now, that's Christopher's. I don't agree with that kind of behavior. I'm just telling you what he said. Okay, that's, I don't agree with that. But anyway, um, so, but we see, so there's familiar spirits that try to enforce the status quo. And so that, there's a spiritual component to this. The enemy will try to evoke these old feelings and try to get you to stay in the status quo. He'll fight change. And it, it's not a coincidence, this familiar thing that translates into English, familiarity and family, does connect here. It's the enemy giving voice, the ventriloquist giving voice to the past, putting pressure on you from the past, even beyond the grave, trying to st- keep those old patterns of behavior. Psychologically and sociologically, we see that same thing happening. Change is not change until it shows up in your relationships. And where this dovetails with what we've been talking about, if you want to see a move of God that will really change your church, change your life, change your family dynamics, get ready for pressure to come from unexpected avenues against you. Sometimes it's the people that have been praying for you to change that will then resist it when it begins to happen. You know that? Sometimes the people that have been crying out to God for you to experience a transformation are the very people who resist it when it happens. Now, when I worked at Teen Challenge, we did something very unique that no other Teen Challenge was doing at the time. I don't know if they are now because I've been out of there for 20 years, but every Teen Challenge needs to do this. What we had, because we had a men's program. Now, it's called Adult and Male uh, Teen Challenge because... They kept the name because it had so much notoriety, but we really dealt with adults. So we had a men's program and a women's program, but I de- dealt primarily with the men. And so what we started to do is have a wives' weekend. Because what we found is these guys would get touched by God. They'd come in. The wife has been praying for their husband to get off of drugs and alcohol for all these times. He'd surrender to Jesus. He'd come in the program, get zapped. He was transformed. He was thinking different, acting different, relating different. And then he'd go home for his five or his 10-day pass, and the wife was like, whoa, 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 back up the transformational truck here, buddy. You're wanting to take back over this family? I've been running this show for a long time. I don't trust you. And the, she begins to... Re- resist the fruit of her own intercession. And at one level, that's understandable. You know, he's got to earn back her trust. But I'm telling you, I've seen some of this get really weird and funky. There was one gal, there was a guy, he was a Native American from out in Montana, had this real thick accent, he was a rodeo rider. And a Native American dude, he was, I mean, I grabbed his arm one time and it didn't give. He was, and uh, I had a showdown with him. I thought he was going to kill me. And he got right up on me, and then he looked at me and said, what am I doing? And he looked down and walked away, and I thought, hallelujah. <laughs> I was wondering the same thing. He apologized later. But, it just... but here, so what had happened is he had a little, little girl that had gotten saved. 
Somebody took her to Sunday school. She got her mom to go to church. Mom got saved. All the kids were saved. And dad was a rodeo rider, drug drinking, womanizing. And so she would, the mom would get up in church every Sunday. Please pray for my husband. He's out running around with other women, drinking and drugging. Just please pray for him. It's so hard on us. We, we, need, we need our dad back. And the church would gather around. They'd pray and pray. And lo and behold, God answered the prayer. So he ends up going to Teen Challenge, surrendering. He and I burnt his, he had all this, you know, Native American religious stuff. We burned the eagle feather. And, and some of that stuff's just culture. But some of this was demonic. And man, he was, he was the real deal. But lo and behold, he's in the program for a few months, and he gets word that his wife's running around the bars. She's running around on him, sleeping around. So, man, this guy, you know, he, he, th this was the guy that was going to beat me up one day because I told him, you know, to do something he didn't want to do. You know, he had a little bit of a temper. So he decided, I'm going home and getting my wife back. He goes home. He's back in the bars, and she's back in church. Pray for my husband. He was doing so good. He was doing so good. And then, then he just left that Teen Challenge program. And We need our father back. We need our husband back. So what happened? God answered her prayer. He went back to Teen Challenge. She went back to the bars. What in the world was that all about? Because her, she had a very clearly defined role in the social, the social dynamic, you know, their relationship. Her role was, I'm the victim, and I need people to feel bad for me. And if life is going too good, I will do something to sabotage it so I can get your sympathy back. Now, she wasn't aware of this, but there was this demonic pattern in her life. There was a psychological sickness there. That's sick. She had this, these issues. And what needed to happen is she needed to deal with her own heart. And so we used to have these wives weekend. And I was less tactful back then. One of my main sessions I would teach to the wives is, it takes one to marry one, a study in codependency. <laughs> and I would talk to the ladies that, hey, the fact that you married this guy shows that there's some work that needs to be done in you too. The fact that that was attractive <laughs> ought to tell you something. And, uh, and that's true. There's, there's, there is a relational dynamic to sin. And when you're in relationship with an addict, you either stop having relationship or you have to grow into areas in the relationship that aren't really yours. You've got to pick up the lack, and you, in a dysfunctional way, you begin to grow into things that you were never intended to have to do in that relationship. And when they repent, it's going to have to take some repentance on your part to retreat and give that power back. And that's a process. And we, we you know, it's, it's okay we're talking like this when we're talking about drug addicts out there, but I'm telling you, that dynamic is not isolated to drug addiction out on the streets. That stuff happens all the time in our lives, and we don't even realize it. And so when God begins to transform somebody, then when we're in relationship with them, it demands transformation on our part too. There's, there's a dynamic that begins to happen that we've got to become aware of, and there's going to take some change in us too. So I, I tell our people, I used to tell the Teen Challenge guys, uh, as a matter of fact, when, when I was first interviewed for our church 20 years ago, they said, one of the lead elders said, Dave, he said, I don't, I don't know why we should hire you as a pastor. He, he was being very nice. He said, if, we, if I didn't know you, I wouldn't even consider you. He said, what you've done all these years is work with drug addicts. What does that have to do with 
church. I said, well, I have found that the struggles in the local church are the same as the ones that drug addicts have. It's just the local church guy has found a more socially acceptable addiction. But it's the same issues. You know, drug addicts and alcoholics don't have unique struggles as much as they just go a little bit off the rails in dealing with them. And we found a little more socially acceptable way to cover our stuff. So I used to tell these guys, I'd say, listen, change is not change until the people closest to you expect the new you, adapt to the new you when you walk through the door. And until that happened, change is not change. You can be as serious as a heart attack, but it, the process of change has not been consummated. The process of change has not been completed until the people closest to you have adapted to the new you. And as long as there's relational resistance still going on, then you're still in flux. We're still in the process. Now, this is true in marriage. This is true. When I got saved, my mom and dad, my dad was a pastor. He had resigned his pastorate because of my, my and my older brother's drug use. And so I, w- I got radically saved. I mean, I met Jesus in a borrowed bedroom as an alcoholic teenager, and uh, I got radically saved. I was serious. Went off to Teen Challenge, went off to Bible school. About three years after I got saved, I was home, visiting home from Bible school, came to see my mom and dad, and went out with some buddies. I was witnessing to them. And I came in, and my dad's sitting in the living room. I said, hey, Dad, what you doing? And we're talking. He said, you know, Dave, it's just now that when you walk through that door, I don't hold my breath wondering if you're going to be drunk. And for a second there, my heart was offended. I was hurt. And I thought, Dad, man, did you really think I was gaming? That lasted about 20 seconds, and I realized, no, this is the way it had to be. Because I had fulfilled those negative expectations so many times that it was incumbent upon me. It wasn't his responsibility to trust me. It was my responsibility to earn the trust. And that was the process. And, and I couldn't get offended. I had, I had reinforced these negative expectations many, many times. And so that was part of change. That's just part of relationship. That when we change, we have to give the other people in our life the time to adapt. But there's a dangerous temptation for us to succumb to the old behavior just to keep the peace. Because there is a tension. I'd watch these guys go home, and all of a sudden they'd revert back to who they used to be. And it'd take them a good month and a half to get back to where they were when they, before they went home. And it would, they had a godly wife that was wanting them to be a godly man and had prayed them in, but wouldn't treat them as such, and just to keep the peace, to avoid the tension, they would surrender to that old behavior. And it was an unconscious thing. And so what we need to realize is change will always cause tension. That's true in church. If you want to turn, turn a church around and see new things happen, there are going to be the very people often that are praying for that change to be realized will resist it as it happens, because that's not the way we did it before. And we are creatures of habit. And so we've got to be aware personally that, hey, man, there's this thing in me. There's an old saying that says, everybody hates change but leaders. I don't agree with that. Everybody hates change. It's just that leaders get to process it before it rolls out publicly. By the time we announce it, we've already processed it and we're bought in. 
And then we're like, we love change. No, we don't. Not when it's imposed upon us. We, no, one, no one wants anybody to force them to change. And so we've got to realize that there is, there is a process we go through that we're, we have to allow the Lord to do a work in our heart and just understand that progress, kingdom advancement, revival, the outpouring of the Spirit, transformation, all these things that we long for, there's also a part in us that will resist it as it happens. And we've got to side against us with the Lord and be aware of that. And we've got to be aware of that in one another. And just, we keep, we hold the line in meekness, not, you know, not ramming anything down people's throat, but this is what we're going for. And allow that process to take, it's, it take the time to get us there. But we, we've got to be aware that there is going to be conflict when there's a move of God. There's going to be conflict when there's transformation. And there are familiar spirits that are vested, they're invested in trying to keep the status quo. They will surrender the ground previously secured as long as you don't try to get any more. And we've got to be aware of that and, and keep our antenna up that there are these, this pressure to pull us back into the status quo. And this is spiritual warfare. But it comes in the form of relationships and often with well-meaning people. Does that make sense? And so we've got to be aware of this, that when we're changing, that there is resistance relationally. It can cause tension. We used to have this illustration we used at Teen Challenge uh, called the canoe ride. You're floating down the life, you know, in your little canoe. You're just going at it. And all of a sudden, there's trauma on the, right, the left side of your canoe. You've gone through some trauma. So now what you do is you lean to the right, always anticipating trauma in that area of your life. So you're kind of bent. You're kind of leaning over. So what do you do? You marry someone that's had trauma on the other side of their canoe, and they bend over. They lean over, and you kind of balance each other out. You think you're both functional. But you're both, you know, your dysfunction fits with mine. We're really healthy. And then what happens? You go to a service, and he or she gets touched, and she sits up a little. And you're drinking river water. And all of a sudden, wait a minute, that's not what I saw. I didn't sign up for the renewed you. I signed up for the dysfunctional you. I knew the dysfunctional you. I knew how to anticipate your behavior. I knew what you would be like. This new healthy you is not comfortable for me. And there are those subtle dynamics that happen all the time, and we don't even realize it, that we resist positive change in those we love because it's uncomfortable for us. And we've just got to be aware of that, that, man, if we want advancement, there's going to be, it, it will strain your relationships. It'll strain your marriage. It'll strain your relationship with your kids. It'll strain, but if you will stay the course, you'll come out of that thing into a new clearing, and you've permanently locked down this transformation. That's why this morning we were talking about when you, when you talk about character being transformed into culture, that's the tension between that trans, where the internal change in me, God's touched me, I'm, my character has changed. But what happens in me has to affect what happens between us or it dies in me. And so it's going to change our relationship. When God does something in me, it's going to change how we relate between us. And we've, when we, I mean, 
Let's take another run at this. Here, your relationships are a mirror of your emotional health. This thing about, you know, the Cinderella living among the cinders, abused little girl, Mary's Prince Charming who's got it all together, and they live happily ever after. There's a reason we refer to that as a fairy tale. Because you are attracted to your level of emotional health. That's what, there's, when my wife, I, God told me, I don't want you dating until you're perfectly satisfied without a woman because otherwise you'll try to fulfill with a woman what only I can fill and I can't bless your idolatry. Now as a 19-year-old kid, when that entered my mind, I knew that is either God or the devil because that wasn't for me. <laughs> and I knew the devil didn't want me not dating, so. And so I said, okay, Lord, I surrendered. It wasn't that quickly. I wrestled with it. But I surrendered to the Lord, and then the Lord brought my wife into my life. She was a mission student. She was beautiful, and she was always in the prayer meetings. We'd have these all-night prayer meetings. I'd see her over there, this beautiful southern belle with her southern accent. So I was attracted to her physically. I was attracted to her spiritually. But unbeknownst to me, I was also attracted to her emotionally because her unresolved issues fit with mine. I didn't recognize it. I didn't know that. That there were things, there were the ways that she viewed herself that fit perfectly with the, the bad ways I viewed myself. And we fit together. And so then as we started walking with the Lord, I tell you what, there was a time in our life where we hit, we hit crisis mode. It was about well, it would have been 17 years ago. We were in the middle of a building program. My wife's pregnant. In her, she's in her 40s. We're having our last child. It was number seven. We're in a building program. The church is exploding. And I'm thinking, oh, this, they say building programs are hard. I don't understand it. And all of a sudden, wham. And I didn't know if we were going to make it. But there were things that we had danced around in our marriage for years that we could no longer dance around. Those things came to a they crashed into us, and we had to deal with some issues in our life. And I had to come to terms with that. There's some unhealthy ways I relate with her and with myself and vice versa, and we got through it. And to this day, we look back at Remember that? Yeah. yeah. Let's not bring that up. Whoa. I mean, it was traumatic, man. It was, whoo, it was hard. But there were unresolved issues in our life. And so we had to work through those things. And this has everything to do with revival. Because we were in the middle of outpouring. God, it, the church was exploding. We were experiencing healings every week. We just had this wave of healings come through the church for about nine months. It was glorious. It was the best of times, what I'd been living for and crying out for, and it was the worst of times. And I can tell you, as God is my witness, before the Lord, I can say with all sincerity, we, we lost a, one of our kids. We, we had a four-year-old son. We, we lost him. He ended up, we ended up burying our four-year-old. And that was the most painful thing I've ever been through in my life until that crisis in our marriage. And it was more painful than that. It was horrendous. But we had to deal with those things. And it was, it was going to be, there was no way we were going to be able to do what God had called us to do until we dealt with that. And God in His grace put the squeeze on us and brought that stuff to the surface. There was no immorality. There wasn't, my wife wasn't cheating on me and I wasn't. There was none of that. It was just relational friction where things were so raw 
that I'd look across the room, pass the salt, and she'd look at me, what did you mean by that? You know, I mean, it was, it was that raw. It, we just couldn't get it. It was so painful. I look back, and there was some demonic stuff involved, and I, I'm, to this day, I know, now I know there was witchcraft, because I know what that feels like. I didn't know what that was. But I can't point to the demonic realm and say that was the cause. It was that there were some underlying issues in our life that gave the demonic access to play off of. Much of what we call demonic oppression is the result, is simply the fruit of dysfunctional relationship. That doesn't negate the enemy's activity. It just defines his entry point. The enemy will ride in on relational dysfunction. And so if we want healthy revival culture, this has everything to do with it. Because to the extent that you have healthy cultures, the extent that you can bear the weight of a move of God. And if we don't have healthy relational culture, what destroys most revivals is not people getting sideways with heaven. It's getting sideways with each other. Offense, the pressures of revival, we don't know how to work through things. We don't know how to run together and just work through those dynamics. We just go and we're going to find another church. Or the pastor, I'm going to resign and get another church. Man, I know pastors who are past, they pastor a different church every year. I remember reading John Maxwell, he said he had a friend that had pastored 24 churches in 23 years. And so John was trying to give him some advice, and he got angry. He said, John, I'm, this isn't my first rodeo. He said, I have 24 years of pastoral experience. He said, no, you don't. He said, you have, 20, you have one year of experience 23 times. If somebody's doing that, there's something going on there that's not healthy. And so we need, I, I tell you what, Pastor Richard, how many years have you been here? 30 years. That is amazing. And yes, let's give that man a hand, seriously. Yeah, that's amazing. And by the way, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Well, yeah, it does. You know, the Bible talks about an unclean spirit. There ain't one here. This is a spick and span place, you know what? Did you guys notice that? This place is so clean. I mean, it is, there is a spirit of excellence on this place. It is awesome. But you don't stay in one place for 30 years without going through some things and stay in the course and loving people well and learning how to work through some things. That's a healthy thing. And so we've got to learn to do relationships and, and press through those things and learn how to press through resolution and, and walk with people. And, and uh, those, those are crucial things to do. This has everything to do with revival. A healthy culture... Healthy culture is a guard against the demonic. Because the enemy can't get in there. The enemy traffics, he travels amid dysfunctional relationships. And so as we have healthy relationships, and, and it, uh, let me just, here's the good news and the bad news. The bad news is there is not one perfectly functional person in this room. The good news is you're in good company because we're all in the process of growing, you know. One layer at a time. We're coming out of these things. But it's important that we talk about them and put them, you know, bring it to a conscious level and recognize we need to learn how to do relationships well because that is the safeguard. That's the container. Our relationships are the container to the move of God, that God can only use us as we learn how to do it well. And I've never met anyone yet that hasn't 
that is really used by the Lord that hasn't been through some relational hell. They've been hurt and disappointed and betrayed. And those that keep on loving and keep on pushing well, those are the ones that God, God's going to use them. You know, we just we need to learn to push through that stuff. We need to be aware of these dynamics. That there are, there are such a thing as a familiar spirit that wants to tie you to the past victories and no more. I'll cut a deal with you. You can have the territory you took, but no more. And if you do, I will instigate conflict in your relationships around you to get you to back down. And just realize when that begins to happen, it's because you're in a time of flux. That new ground is being taken. And even the well-meaning people in your life that want to see it happen will resist it, and they don't even know it. And so we just got to ride through that time and establish new boundary lines and healthy relationships, and that becomes an act of spiritual warfare. Going low, being patient, loving well, having to call people on things and not, not taking responsibility for things that you didn't do, because that's not helpful. And when that kind of stuff happens, we grow up together. That's what healthy culture is about. A healthy culture is one in which we have, we have to call people on their stuff. In love, not arrogantly. Privately, if possible. But we go through those things so that we can become the functional container that can contain the move of God. But if we, if, you know, shallow relationships cannot bear the weight of a move of God. You've got to have people that you know each other and you run with each other. And you're willing to stick it in, stick in there and just work through those things and not give up so easily. American culture that is willing to abandon ship the first time their, you know, their suggestion isn't executed according to what they want, uh, can't bear, bear the weight of revival. So healthy relationships are crucial. Anybody have any thoughts or questions or comments? Or Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If you have something specific. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we do. We, we've got to, we got to be able to do life together at some degree. I mean, I know we, we live in a busy culture, you know, but... Man, if you don't have long-term relationships where you're in the trenches together, you're just, at best, you're going to be a spectator on the edges. So, yes, ma'am. How we went, you know, went at it, we were just, we were just hungry to experience uh, I'd been I'd been a student of revival history, you know. I mean, I'd, I'd read about revival my whole life, and and uh, at least when I came back to the Lord, and uh, I was raised in a really good church. 
Uh, pastor Richard's spiritual father was my, uh, was my childhood pastor. He was a latter rain prophet that had a real touch of God in his life. So I had, had that in my history. Uh, and so then when I got saved, man, I was, I was hungry for the real thing. I had tried everything else. Uh, and so when revival began to break out in the mid-90s, I thought it was too good to be true. I thought I was destined to just read about what God did in the past. And then when Brownsville broke out, man, I was like, oh my goodness. I, I didn't, Toronto, I wasn't into, you know. But Brownsville, like Christopher said, suits, ties, and tears, that's my thing, you know. This laughing and, and uh, Hawaiian shirts, that's, whoa. And uh, so, but uh, so we, we just began to go. Anytime that we heard of something happening, we'd go check it out. And I was telling some of the leaders this afternoon, we used to have this saying we'd say all the time, uh, drink from someone else's well while you dig your own. Go where God is pouring out. Man, let's get under that. Let's, let's go there. And I want to get their oily hand on my head. And man, we'd go places. If God was pouring out, we'd check it out. And sometimes you'd be a little disappointed. Wow, this isn't up, up to what they said. But other times you'd be pleasantly surprised. Oh my goodness, this is powerful. And just, you know, drink. And then so then what we would do is we would come back and we would immediately, we'd go to conferences up in Toronto, drive all that way. It'd be like, you know, 20 hours of drive, and we'd load up all kinds of people in vehicles. They're hanging out at the windows, you know, crush everybody in there we could, go up there, and then right after the service on Friday night, we'd get in the car and drive all night long, just in time to get home, take a quick shower, and go back to church for Saturday night service on Saturday night at 6. We used to have this Saturday night service, and God began to break out. And, uh, man, there's a principle. You get to keep what you give away, so just start giving it away. Give it away. And, uh, and so we, we just, anytime God was moving, we'd try to go and we began to pray and just cry out to God, God, we want to, we want, there there was this thing before I became the pastor at Heartland, the the previous pastor had asked my, my wife and I to come over and help him. And so we would, we'd go over there and he said, would you head up intercession? I said, sure. So I'd drive over from teen challenge, all my babies, my wife and I had seven kids at the time we had like, I guess our son had just passed. We had like five of our kids at the time and we'd all these little babies. We had three kids in 1991. In February, we had our oldest, and in November, we had twins. He was eight and a half months when the twins were born, and it was crazy. And, uh, and so we'd load all these kids up, and, and it would be my wife and I, our little babies, and this one lady, and we'd be praying, and we were renting the high school at the time and crying out to God, and I would say, God, and I'd find myself just praying this out, God, raise up a man in this region that'll let you move in his church. And I would catch myself, and I thought, man, that's going to be offensive to our pastor, you know, like implying that he's not the guy. But this thing was in me about that. And uh, so I would just keep crying that out for months. God, raise up a man in this region that will let you move in his church. And then so uh, our pastor resigned, and he told me, he said, I think you're the guy to follow me. And I felt like the Lord said, are you willing to be the answer to your own prayer? Are you willing to let me do that? And so we just started crying out. Now, I thought I was willing, and then crazy stuff would happen and the Lord would have to deal with me all over again, you know. But uh, just that hunger. And so where there's hunger, God's going to honor. But it's not just hunger because you've got to also, there's fresh surrender along the way. A lot of people are hungry as long as God does it their way. And so you got to surrender to that all over again. I told you, man, that the Lord dealt with me about, you know, are you willing to look like a fool for me? And, uh, and so they, you know, we just kept and then we do a lot of training and just experiment. Okay, we learned how to do that prophecy thing. Let's try it. You know, we just do training on Saturdays and 
started to be momentum, and God was gracious. But So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of how it happened. But I think, you know, just get where God's moving and, and make trips there, you know. There's something about, and Christopher shared last night, he would, he'd spend his entire savings to go to a revival service, and then he'd go back and spend his savings. He, again and again and again, he was, he was wanting this thing to happen, you know. He, he wanted, he was hungry enough that he was liquidating his finances to do it. So, uh, someone else had their hand up? Someone, Yes. You know, I stumbled across a principle, and I, I used to call it vicarious processing. You know, vicarious is a theological word that I'm going to, to do something in, in the place of someone else. You know, Jesus vicariously suffered for us, so I didn't have to, he suffered. Well, vicarious processing, if I, so what I would do is I would talk about my own struggles with the congregation, and when I would see things, I would, I, I, we'd do it in a funny way, you know, joke about things we saw and how we struggled. People would laugh and stuff. But there was a, there was a reason behind what I was doing. I was, I was trying to help them enter into my own struggle of processing this so that when they saw things in our church, they were already a ways down the road. Oh, that's what he was talking about. Oh, now I understand. It wasn't new to them and they had to start from scratch. So if I could bring them in autobiographically into my own struggle, and just share, man, this is, you know, man, this is what I wanted to see. But, man, that happened. And, I mean, I, I went to revival services where they'd have one, this one place. They had, people had swimming pools and little duckies. And uh, they're, they're playing in the pool. Get in the river. Get in the river. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. The raw power of God was in the room and such weird stuff. There was one guy with this little fairy baton. He was touching people. I'm like, dude, you know, don't come near me, you know. It was just weird. But it was, but there was also the raw power of God. People, I mean, some of the biggest ministries today were birthed out of that place. But there was a lot of nut stuff, you know. So I would share about that. And I would say, hey, this is, but I was hungry and I was willing to, you know, hey, there's, there's always dust and divinity, you know. There's, there's, there's the real, and then there's a mixture of some other stuff. And I'm hungry enough, I'll overlook that. And I would help, I would talk about that stuff so that, when they saw it, it wouldn't be a stumbling block, if that makes sense. And so that was one of the things that we, you know, just just did that. And there were people that, yeah, there there was people that resist, you know, felt like this isn't God. There were some people. I remember there was one gal. Uh, God really began to move in our church, and she had a bunch of family come up from Texas, and she came up front for prayer for something. Boom! She hit the floor, got right back up, kind of looked around, and. Went and sat down, and uh, she calls me like two days later. Um, Pastor, yeah, uh, um, uh, I'm just, um, uh, just, um, um, I just want you to know, I know this is God. Click. Okay. <laughs> Within three months, she called one of the other pastors. She said, "Listen, I don't want all this stuff." She had told me, "I know this is God," but she said, "I don't want." She said, "I want to be able to go to church and go home. I just want a nice church. I don't want all this stuff." Here's the problem. When you've, when you've come in contact with that and you know it's God, when you say, God, not interested, you don't just stop right there. You have set in motion a process called the hardening of the heart. I mean, her life blew up. She left her husband for another guy, the kids. Uh, I mean, the whole family, it's just a tragic story. But it's, it wasn't, 
We had a lot of people left our church. I mean, you know, that's, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as they did it for the right reasons. It was why she left. She was saying no to the Lord. I don't want all this stuff. So there are people like that. Not everybody will go with you, you know. So, yeah, anybody else? Yes. Yeah. Wow, that's a really good question. Um, here's, here's the answer that we probably don't want, and a lot of times we don't recognize. That's why we end up in it. And so what we do need are, we need to have an open heart to those around us that love us enough to get some good counsel, you know? And just allow the Lord to mirror our heart and show us these unhealthy patterns. Uh, because deception is very deceptive. You don't know when you're in it. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't realize your issues when you're in your issues. It's uh, being a person who's open with other people is a real safeguard against that. I tell our people all the time, what sounds true in a monologue is exposed for the lie that it is in a dialogue. You ever, you ever been thinking something, and then someone says, what's the matter? And you say, well, and then you tell them what you're thinking, and as you're saying it, you're turning beet red and embarrassed. Sweat. That is such a dumb thing to believe. But until you said it to them, all of a sudden you realize, well, that's kind of whacked, isn't it? Yeah. It's because you got it objectively, you put it on the table and stepped away from it, and you were able to see it for what it is. And so if you have those relationships where you're, you're open about your insecurities and open about, you know, you don't have to have that with everyone, you know. You don't have to wear a T-shirt with, you know, these are my, these are my dysfunctional behaviors. But, but to have some people in your life where you're being honest and open, you know, spiritual mothers and fathers uh, in your life, that'll be a real safeguard against that. Yeah, but that's a great question. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes. Let me first address, when you say that the first mark of revival is unity, among the people that are in the revival, because they're all experiencing the same thing and God's invading. Uh, and that doesn't even necessarily mean that we all agree, it's just that there's a bigger ticket item, you know, that God's encountering us. Matter of fact, I think a real mature expression of what, you, you know, when you're saying it, I think a mature expression of revival is when we can enjoy the presence of God with people that we have real disagreements with, but we overlook those, you know, that's not the mainstay. Yeah. I, I, like, I like hanging around with people that have different views on things, because it'll sharpen you, and now, I like theology, it's interesting, but, you know, sometimes that can be dicey too, but, uh, yeah, I think you, you know, we can't, we can't control a person from trying to take credit for something. We can guard against it ourselves, you know. Uh, and there is, you know, we, we see it all down through history. What starts out as God invading, we, we turn into a doctrine. It becomes our unique thing, our, our 
the thing that we identify ourselves with, and now where it's no longer about the move of God, it's about this position, and, and uh, I mean, tragically, that there's been some, I know of a, down in Latin America, powerful, powerful uh, movement that was birthed in intercession and rocked nations, and now it's just become this kind of inbred family thing where they look at themselves as very unique when it was birthed out of just real brokenness and humility and, and uh, frankly, not very much success in ministry. The guy was just so broken, he said, I guess God only uses special people. And the Lord challenged him, and he began to go after the Lord. And after about a year, God really began to use him. But what, what was the mark of it is he was just not a real successful minister. I mean, the message was God can use anybody. And over time, it became God can use us, you know. So I don't know that we can, we can keep that from anyone else, but we can sure guard our own heart, you know. And if you're in a relationship with them, point it out. But uh, usually when people believe that, they're not real open to <laughs> input. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, usually, if it's, if it's the leader... There's nothing you can do because they're the leader. If, it's, if, you, if you're the leader or someone else is the leader and it's some of the, then there needs to be a reckoning, you know, a talking to and just, hey, we need to get this thing back on track. And, uh, but when a leader goes awry, it's really hard because the Lord has to step in and deal with them be, unless there's accountability above him, you know, or her, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but yeah, yeah, and there is, you know, we need those, those times where we have those come to Jesus meetings with each other, you know, hey, man, I'm, I'm hurt, you said this, or it feels like you're doing that, and mature relationships can endure those kind of things. Matter of fact, the real deep relationships are the ones that can go through that and come out the other side, and you're closer, you know. But unfortunately, a lot of times those are few and far between. But man, when you got them, oh my goodness. That's awesome. Anybody else? Someone over here? Yes. Sure. Um, <laughs> what time are we going to be done here? It's 4.30? 4.15. Okay, let me, let's teach on deliverance real quick. All right. Here's, and, and really, this is the form of deliverance because there is, see, you can have a power encounter, but if you don't backfill it with re restructuring your relationships, you will not remain free. And so we can see a lot of people have a power encounter and end up losing the ground back again because the dysfunctional, the, the context in which all that happens has never changed. And so this is part of deliverance. Now, when we talk about deliverance, uh, you know, I'm sure many of you have been in training on, in deliverance and stuff. Uh, in a move of God, deliverance becomes even more prominent because, as Christopher alluded to last night, when the Spirit of God begins to move, it's like when Paul was on the island, remember? It said he threw some wood on the fire and the heat of the flame drove a serpent to the surface and latched onto Paul. The fires of revival will expose darkness in people that have been lying dormant for many years. Now, I don't know what you believe. I was taught that a Christian could not need deliverance, that a Christian could not have demonic issues. I adamantly disagree with that. 
I've seen too much, okay? Uh, deliverance is, when, when Jesus said healing is the children's bread, it was deliverance. If you look, there was a demon cast. Deliverance is the children's bread. What, what good is it going to do to get deliverance if you don't know the Lord? You know, you're a revolving door. It's deliverance is the children's bread, and you can, you can make room. Part of the problem is we, we use this modern terminology. We talk about uh, they are demon-possessed. That is not the Greek. The Greek word would be better translated demonized. In other words, acted upon by a demon. There's demonic influence of some degree. Is it oppressed, compressed, suppressed, impressed? It doesn't matter. If there's demonic activity, you want to close the door so they no longer have access. So there's not, demon-possessed is our modern construct to try and explain this issue of what the Bible calls someone who's demonized. There's, there's demonic influence in their life. And so there are levels of demonic influence. The Gadarene demoniac had more issues than the guy who, you know, is dealing with some bad thoughts from time to time because of a demonic inroad. But the, the demonic, the way we, we need to deal with that is we, we need to discern the legal ground. The enemy, the enemy is the biggest legalist this side of heaven. He is, he is a legalist and he will leverage any legal precedence to demand access to someone's soul. And so what we need to do is discern the legal precedence. What is going on that gave that, that demonic entity access? Now, there's, there's some really good teaching out there. Uh, I, I think one of the cleanest ways that I've heard it articulated, and I agree with this, that there are two avenues through in by which the enemy will uh, gain access to a person's life. There is legal ground, something you did that provided the enemy the legal right to afflict you, or uh, intrusion. There, there can be trauma in someone's life where they're not the perpetrator, they're the victim, but that trauma opens the door for the enemy to begin to, begin to afflict them. And those two things, uh, whereas the intrusion, there's an inner healing element that needs to take place so that, that that ground is no longer there. It's like, it's like two boxers, you know. You can have a guy that's a great boxer. He's, you know, man, he's, he's got stamina, he's got heart, he's got skill, he's strong, endurance, but he's got a glass jaw. Or he bleeds easy. Well, a lesser fighter, if he can leverage that, he can keep pounding that one wound until they'll call the fight. And the enemy will often do that in our life. There's wounds that the enemy accesses, and he'll pound on those wounds so that the fight will be called, that he'll get the upper hand. And so we need to deal with those, that woundedness in our life and gain healing so that the enemy can access us in that, that area. And so we need to have trusted people we go to that can walk us through inner healing. And there's a lot of inner healing models out there. Uh, we, we just need to have some. We need to deal with those. Legal ground demands repentance. We need to take that ground back. You know, in, in uh, Psalm 23, it says, He restoreth my soul. We give ground. That Ephesians chapter 4 says, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Don't give the devil a foothold or don't let the, give the devil ground. It's translated both ways. And it's a military term. It's saying that you're giving him legal access. And in that passage, he's talking specifically about unforgiveness. If I'm praying for someone and they start to manifest or I sense, hey, there's a demonic issue here and I don't have a word of knowledge, I don't have any insight, man, my go-to thing is who do you need to forgive? Because 85% of the time, that's what's going on. And that, a lot of times that, that goes along with healing as well. There's a, there is a, a spirit of infirmity that has gained access because of unforgiveness. 
And the enemy has the legal right. In Matthew 18, it says, if you, you know, Jesus said, if you don't forgive, you will be thrown over to the tormentors. It gives the enemy the legal right to begin to torment you and afflict you. So we have to repent and thereby remove the ground out from underneath the enemy's feet. So we can have our bitterness, but it also gives the enemy legal, legal access. Or we can renounce that, humble ourselves, say, God, I need you to help me because, man, I'm angry and I'm, I'm making a decision to forgive. Man, I've seen it before. We, we were, I'll never forget, one night we were in this healing crusade and, and uh, people were getting healed all over and there were these two ladies and they were, I, I don't remember exactly what, I think one of them had a hip issue and another some internal organs and the power of God was all over them but there was no movement and I said, who do you need to forgive? And this lady spat out, my daughter-in-law and my mother-in-law. She hated her in-laws. And I said, you need to forgive. You don't know what they did. And I said, well, you ain't going to get healed. You can keep your sickness if you want to keep your bitterness. But you're not going to get healed. I don't, I'm not usually that blunt. But I said, you're, you're, you, you need to think about this and I'll be back. And went and prayed for some other. There was another lady, very similar. The one said, okay. And as soon as she did, she was immediately healed. The other one said, I'll never. She walked out with her sickness. She knew the power of God was on her. But she chose her bitterness over that. I remember one time, we were, on a Sunday morning, we were, we were in worship, and, and uh, I was praying and saying, okay, God, who do you want to heal this morning? And all of a sudden, I felt this pain go up my, my neck. It was a word of knowledge about pain in the neck. And, uh, and I just said to the Lord, I said, Lord, I want something bigger. I want, you know, heal a tumor or something. I, I was just having this dialogue with the Lord, and all of a sudden, my left eye went blind. It scared me. Oh, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I, I got to see. I said, oh, man, this, this is a word of knowledge. So I got up. I said, there's someone here with your, your blind in your deaf, blind in your deaf eye. You're, is your eye deaf? God, and uh, you're blind in your left eye. And uh, I said, you're either totally blind or you just can see around the periphery. Well, lo and behold, there was a gal. I'd known her for years. Never knew she was blind in that eye. She just had a little light around the edges. So man, I'm man, now I'm full of faith, you know, man of God. Nothing. I rebuked it. I blessed it. I, you know, and there was no movement. I thought, what in the world? So I did what any man of God would do. I got our prayer to him. I said, You guys pray for her. I'm gonna look for someone who'll get healed. <laughs> and just as I turned, the Lord spoke to me and said, Ask her how it happened. And I knew. So I said, How did this happen? And she said, I knew her husband when he was alive. He had gone through Teen Challenge. He had died from liver disease after he went through Teen Challenge. She said, you know Jody, man, when he was using, he got angry at me and punched me in the eye. And I can't see. But I said, you need to forgive him. She said, Pastor, he was using. She said, I forgave him years ago. You know Jody. He was dead now. And she loved her husband. She missed him. And I said, well, why don't you just say it out loud? It was such a vivid illustration to me. Because here's a lady... In her heart, she had totally forgiven him. And it was very evident, by the way. She, but I said, just say it. She said, Lord, I forgive Jody. And as soon as she did, a squeal came out of her. She was instantly healed. Her eye went open. Wow. Now, here's a lady who, in her heart of hearts, I, I don't hold anything against him. But the enemy was holding that over her. There was a spirit of infirmity on a legal precedence. And she was instantly healed. It was just an amazing thing to me. The same thing is true with affliction and oppression and stuff. We give the enemy legal right. We need to understand this, this is not a game. The enemy plays for keeps, and so we've got to keep our heart clean. 
And so if you're praying for someone and they're, they're manifesting and you rebuke that thing and there's, we, I used to, when we first started doing deliverance years ago, man, it'd be like hours. They'd be puking all over everything and we exhausted. It'd be like four hours and you're all, you're all sweating. <laughs> Finally, you'd leave, you know, it was like a power encounter. And I realized, you know what? The reason is because that thing had legal ground and we were just, it was a battle of the wills. It doesn't have to be that way. That if we deal with the legal ground, that thing has to leave. And so the three top areas by which people give legal ground to the enemy is unforgiveness. You see that in several passages. Number two, occult involvement. A lot of times people got involved in occult practices. They don't even realize it. That's illegal in the kingdom. You have put a welcome mat in front of your, your soul. You're saying, I look to the kingdom of darkness for what I only should look to the kingdom of light for. I want guidance. I want power. And so I'm going to look to the kingdom of darkness. And you have to unchoose that. So you repent of sinning and renounce your involvement. And you send a message, hey, I, I renounce this. I don't want anything to do with this. You break that thing. The third one, and, and we're seeing a rise in this, of course, in this nation, is sexual immorality. And the more perverted those things, the more likely there's going to be, the more unnatural the relations, the more likely that there's going to be some demonic element to that. And, uh, and there can be a mixture of those things, but those are really the three primary ones. And if, if you're praying for someone and there's not movement, there, you know, man, the power of God is on them. They're manifesting. Let me just tell you, if, if somebody is manifesting a demon, it's already at its last death throes. They love to live undercover. They don't want to expose themselves. They do that to intimidate you and to freak you out and get you to back off. And so if they're already manifesting, that's good news. Then it's, it's, there, there's reason, there, there, there's something going on and we can get, take care of that. And so just ask those diagnostic questions. Is there anybody you need to forgive? And be open to the Lord giving you impressions because there's times. It's like Christopher talked last night. That one gal, he said, is there anybody you need to forgive? Yeah, maybe the father of my baby. And no, I don't think there is. And Christopher said, what about your dad? <laughs> she grabs him by the suit coat. Well, he struck a nerve. And sometimes people don't even realize. It's just so much a part of them. They don't even realize. And so just those little impressions, just ask diagnostic questions and what about this and and uh, because once that happens, if you can lead them through repentance and they can tell that spirit, you no longer, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm, I'm you know, I, I renounce this activity in my life. I repent before God and I renounce towards the enemy. Uh, then you can, you can begin to take people through deliverance and people can be set free. And uh, the fact is a lot of times, many of you have experienced this, deliverance can be in layers. It's, it's not like people get all their deliverance in one night. But I've seen it many times. We'll, we'll be in a, in a revival, maybe doing a bunch of meetings in a, in a given place, and man, God's breaking out night after night, and some guy goes through dramatic deliverance. Then the next night, he's going through dramatic deliverance. Then the next night, he's going through more. By the fourth or fifth night, he's getting free. But there's just layers of this stuff. And I'm thinking of this one guy. His mom and dad dedicated him to the devil when he was a little baby. And uh, these blood sacrifices, and there was some really stubborn stuff. I mean, it had to leave, but man, there were layers of that over several days. And one of the things the enemy will try to do is they'll use people to wear you out and tell, you know, man, I got a demon. 
I didn't know I had a demon until tonight. And, you know, you got to stay till 4 a.m. and get, get me free. And you need to realize, hey, that, they've been walking around with that thing for a long time. You can deal with it within the confines. Get your rest, and let's just do it. We don't have to be alarmed. They don't, and if we get alarmed, we're feeding into that. No, hey, you know, God's got this. And, uh, but there's deliverance for us. Uh, we have the authority in Jesus' name. And so the real thing is those diagnostic questions. Derek, do you have anything to add to that? Generational what? Yes. <clears throat> yes. I think that's as much psychological as it is spiritual. I think there are psychological patterns of behavior that were discipled in a family. You know, that's just the way we do family. We think everybody has families like that. And that behavioral stuff really sets us up for that. But elaborate if you got something more on that. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, instead of just telling them. And, and part of that is your, you've had a lot of training, a lot of history, that there's things you pick up. So some of that is a word of knowledge, but some of that is your training. But it, it, it should be an encouragement to all of us. As you do that, there's things you begin to pick up. That's why I asked him that, because I know that he's been used in that way a lot. Uh, but just, yeah, so there's, yeah, I, I, I do think that there's, there, are, there is generational flow that some of that stuff is visited. Let, let me give you an, a, an example. Um, this was probably eight months ago. I think I might have shared this when I was here before. But we're in worship. It might have been a year and a half ago. We're in worship one Sunday morning. And uh, there's this precious family that was part of our church. These beautiful little daughters. They're, and our people all come up front and worship. Well, not all of them, but a bunch of people come up front. And as we're worshiping, all of a sudden I saw one of the girls, she was probably 11 years old, and the only way I can explain it is I saw a target on her private parts that she was targeted for molestation. I saw a target on her. And I was like, what in the world? Now, let me just pause here. If you don't know who you are in the Lord, if you don't know your heart and know, hey, I'm, I'm clean, man. I don't struggle with that. I'm a man of God. Now, do I, am I perfect? No, but I don't entertain that stuff. Had that happened to me 20 years ago, I'd have freaked me out. What's wrong with me? Oh, man, you know, oh, I'll get counseling. But I knew that that's not in my heart, so I, I leaned into it, and uh, I was suddenly aware that she had a, a there was a, a, a grandfather or a great-grandfather that had sold the daughters to the devil for financial gain and power, so that, and they dedicating these girls to, 
to molestation, generations of it. I just knew it in my spirit. And I'm thinking, well, what do I do with that? You don't get up and share that with a congregation, you know. Hey, little girl, come up here. So what I did is I just got up and I said, there are generational curses. There, some of you look at your family line and there's generation, there's, there's things that have shown up all down through the generations. And there's deliverance here this morning. God wants to break that off. If you recognize that in your family. So a bunch of people came forward, we prayed. I get done preaching that morning. I'd forgotten all about it by this time. All of a sudden, I saw the mom of that little girl grab her husband and come beeline over. She said, Pastor, I need to talk to you now. She said, when you said that, it freaked me out. She said, you know, every woman in my family, all my aunts, my mom, my grandmother, all the daughters, the nieces, all of us have been sexually molested. It's like it chases us everywhere we go. And I told her, I said, well, as a matter of fact, the reason I said, and I told her, what, what, what had happened, that, that, that's exactly what I saw. I don't know exactly what happened, but I'm telling you, there was a forefather that consciously entered into a deal with the enemy, and he unleashed sexual immorality on those girls as victims in exchange for power and, and wealth. And it's just been tragic, because I know some of the extended family. It was just tragic. But that, that's an example. And this is, this is a situation where this girl... It wasn't she was going out and biting that. That was intrusion. That an authority figure in her life extended that. And so we prayed and just asked God, God, break into this thing. And Lord, we renounce this. We plead the blood. She's been cut off from Adam. And she's now grafted into Christ. We plead the blood. And, and, uh, but those, those things, there is, you know, there's occultism that is raw evil. And that people will do things to people. But we can deal with it. The blood covenant of Jesus overrules every other covenant. And so, yeah. Anything else you'd share on that, those dynamics that would be helpful? Yeah. 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 And it's interesting how you said that. You know, they it's not just their perception, it is reality. And what it does is it shapes your psyche because what you expect, you project. If your history is I always get rejected, then you expect to be rejected. You treat people like they're going to reject you and they're willing to do so. <laughs> because of how you're acting. And it, there's this psychological forming that happens that we need to break free from. And, uh, you know, we're integrated beings. We're spirit, soul, and body. And we need to be aware of it at that level, that there's, there's psychological behavioral patterns we've got to confront in our soul. So anybody else have any? We've got we to close, but anybody else have any question about that? So inner healing is a, is a whole... Inner healing and, and uh, inner healing, physical healing, and deliverance all go, they dovetail. You move back and forth in between them. But inner healing is just introducing the truth of God into people's lives. And there are times where, I know for me, 
man, I had some powerful encounters with the Lord at the hands of some godly men and women that knew they would just get a word. And, and uh, they'd say, man, when I first got saved, I'd be in Teen Challenge. One would say, you know, I was praying for you, and the Lord told me this. And as they began to delve in that, man, I'd have an encounter that the Lord would come in the room, touch me. Sometimes I'd go into a vision, you know, see something, and sometimes it just, they would address a lie, and uh, God can use us in that way, and we need to contend for that. You know, that's a whole other subject, and there's some great healing models there. Suffice it to say this, if, if we want to move of God, and we want to disciple the next harvest, then somebody in our midst better be flowing in inner healing and deliverance and those type of things, you know. And there are people that are in our midst that are, are gifted. There are people that are called to different things. And just realize that the body works together, and so we just need to be praying those people in. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send laborers. And if you're missing the people that are doing inner healing, pray in some inner healers. And if you're, you know, whatever. So, amen? All right. Uh, pastor, anything, any announcement? 7 o'clock, we'll be back here. Pastor, or I mean, uh, Christopher is going to be speaking. I have no idea what he's going to talk on, but it'll be good. And then tomorrow morning, uh, Christopher will be at Pastor Dave's church. I'm going to be here, and then we'll be back here tomorrow night at 6 o'clock for a fire tunnel. We're going to do a little bit of teaching on impartation, and then we're, gonna, we're just going to let the Lord move. It's going to be fun. So, all right, bless you. Get some, get some dinner.